Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's show, I'm joined by Dr. E. Ashley Steele, who's with the Pacific Northwest Research Station, which is part of the USDA Forest Service. She's here to talk to us about the thermal landscapes of river systems, their temperatures, And that's a field that, like so many others, has exploded with the availability of new technology. And researchers are now struggling to deal with the torrents of data that are coming from that technology. I'll let her explain those. So let's go straight to the interview. Dr. Steele, thank you for being here today. Just to get us started, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about, you know, river temperatures and why we measure them and what they can tell us about those systems, just in a really broad sense. Of course. So temperature regulates an enormous range of biological and ecological processes, right? From the very bottom, from enzymatic reactions, metabolism, individual species growth. Temperature also regulates behavior and, of course, interspecies interactions. And in a stream, temperature can have a really strong influence over the whole food web. So from algae to aquatic insects, amphibians and fishes. And we've understood that temperature is important for a long time. Time, but we've naturally focused a lot on what happens on average. We've focused a lot on um, lethal effects and uh, how temperature can increase or decrease growth rates. And we're now also becoming interested in how temperature affects phenology or the, the timing of particular life history transitions. Okay. And so, you know, looking back in it sort of historically, um, those temperature measurements were fairly blunt, weren't they? Yeah, well, originally we measured the streams, you know, one person, one temperature, one person, one thermometer at a time, right? So somebody went out there and they put a thermometer in the river and they measured the temperature. And then we had min-max temperatures. And maybe about 20 years ago, we started to have these um, recording thermometers that were pretty cheap and relatively easy to install. And people started installing them in a, a few places. And suddenly we had water temperature that wasn't, Um, the average of a couple of discrete measurements, but we had a whole time series of information every half hour, every 15 minutes, every three hours. Well, however, someone wanted to program their logger. And that gave us kind of a new vision of what water temperatures look like. And slowly we've been installing these in more and more and more places and now beginning to have a vision of what water temperature looks like over an entire stream network. And, And what does it look like? Is it more varied than it was originally thought? I, I think we always knew that it was variable, but we had to naturally focus on what happens on average. So on average, temperatures warm as they go downstream, or on average, it's cooler in the winter than the summer. And then as we've gotten all of these data and been able to assemble them into entire models of a stream network, we can start to think about not just what happens on average, but what's happening over very small amounts of time or at very short distances. And we can start to see subtleties that, for example, you know, there is a stronger elevation gradient in summer than there is in winter or a shift so that areas that are potentially the most variable in summer, these uh, high water tributaries are potentially relatively less variable than the main stem in winter. So we can start to see that um, beyond what happens just on average and the importance of, in particular, variance, these fluctuations in time and these um, diversity of little patches of thermal habitats in space. And those sort of fine scale differences, those matter to organisms, right? We are just starting to figure out how much they matter to organisms. I think 
when, as I said, when we first started, we really thought about what happens on average. So we would say, okay, well, when the temperatures increase, metabolism also increases depending on how much food is available and how the increase in metabolism balances with available food. Maybe we see bigger growth rates or reductions in growth rate. We might see what happens uh, when, if you heat things up enough, a lot of organisms die. We spend a lot of energy exactly how high they had to go before an organism had a lethal effect. And we started doing some experiments a couple of years ago where we exposed Chinook salmon eggs in a laboratory to water temperature regimes that were fairly similar with respect to mean temperature and nearly identical with respect to range. And how they differed was in how that temperature was delivered. So uh, there's been a rule of thumb, sort of degree day delivery. So how much temperature an organism gets is how much it grows. So if you deliver 10 days at one degree, that is the same as five days at two degrees, because in both cases, you've accumulated 10 degree days. And in our experiments, we looked at how temperature was delivered, not just how many degree days, but how they were delivered. Did you deliver them all at once, or was it a very variable regime? And we saw that there were effects on phenology, on emergence timing um, of Chinook eggs, depending on how variable the water temperature regime was. So it wasn't just an uh, influence of how much temperature was delivered, but how that temperature was delivered. Um, so we could see, for example, in a pretty cool stream, maybe three degrees, you could imagine a change in almost a week when an organism would emerge based simply on how variable the thermal regime was, even with a very similar mean temperature. Okay, so you're seeing this, you know, greater variation than you were previously able to track. Uh, but are you also seeing the same sort of phenomenon sort of on the spatial scale, you know, are different parts of different river networks behaving differently as well? Yes. So when we look at the whole river network, there are, we can see that, for example, some parts of the network are perhaps more driven by snow-dominated uh, hydrology, and some are by rain-dominated hydrology. There's groundwater inputs, there's shading, there's human impacts, there's how quickly water that falls as precipitation makes it into the stream, depending on soil conditions or amount of asphalt. And so all of these things contribute to an incredibly patchy network over space. So we've been applying these spatial stream network models. These are a pretty exciting statistical advance in which instead of just looking at how things are related to each other or correlated in space, as they might be in a room or in a field over two-dimensional space, when you think about a river network, things are correlated within a network. There's directionality of flow is always moving downstream. Small tributaries come into larger tributaries, and then temperatures mix. And these spatial stream network models can accommodate this network-based correlation structure, and that enables us to make predictions across a whole network from a set of observations at discrete points. You know, as we're talking about all these measurements, I was hoping we could move back just for a second and get an idea of the scale of that situation. You know, how many more measurements are there now than there were, say, 25 years ago? What, what's the order of magnitude like? It depended on the project, of course, but the measurements that were originally set up, that the you know, the ones that I'm most familiar with from U.S. Geological Survey, those are really one measurement per stream system down lower in the stream, and it was often there was a mean, max, and minimum temperature recorded every day. So one temperature per watershed. And then for particular research projects, of course, people would install 
as many water temperature measuring devices as they could. Um, and now there are systems, so our stream system, we have 43 uh, loggers measuring water temperature every half an hour on the Snoqualmie River. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a big step up. <laughs> yes. Just out of curiosity, are those access, is, that, is the data accessed remotely or is that something that you, know, you have to you know, trudge out into the, into the watershed and find? We get to trudge. We, we go out um, in June and check on the loggers and then in September at the end of the hydrologic cycle, which in the Pacific Northwest tends to be the lowest water at the end of September, we go out and actually download each logger. There are some technologies where you can download the logger from above the stream and reset it. The technology that we happen to use, we actually pull it out of the river, attach it um, to the computer for a brief minute, download all the data, and then put it back under the water. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and so, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, you're you're finding this variability, and it has an effect on phenology. I'm wondering about the broader implications of that. You know, uh, how does this relate to management? You know, are, are there things that people would do differently with this information at hand? I think there are lots of things people do differently. And I want to step one second to something I, I think is really important, which is why variability would have a biological effect. And there's, there's a statistical reason that people have understood for a long time. And there are it has this ecological implications that I think we're only just grappling with. And after I explain that, then we can talk about what management might do differently as a result. So there's something called Jensen's inequality. It's something people learn about in the first quarter of a mathematical statistical class in graduate school, for example. And what it says is that when you have a curved function, convex or concave, the average of what happens at many different values is not equal to what happens at the average value. And it sounds a little bit complicated, but if you think about it, it's quite natural. So if you have, um, if things are have a curved function and you have an average temperature of say 10 degrees, what happens when you increase to 11 or 12 degrees might be much more dramatic than what happens when you decrease to nine or eight degrees. And so when you fluctuate, even if you keep that same mean of 10 degrees, what happens after a long time will not be at a fluctuating water temperature, will not be the same at what happens at a mean. And this indicates that we, we have to really think about not just mean temperature, but we need to collect these data that can help us understand how temperatures vary, because clearly that variability will have some kind of biological impact. Okay, and then what do we do with that information once we have it at hand? You know, once we know more about the um, thermal landscape, how does that influence our future actions? So there's a couple ways. The kind of ways we've always been conserving or restoring streams, this gives us extra validity for doing those kind of things. Things we've done before are, for example, reconnecting side channels to floodplains. We've always known that was useful. Now we also understand that it is helping organisms reach a diverse um, portfolio of thermal habitats as well. We can conserve or restore riparian buffers. These are the trees that grow along the stream side and that can prevent solar radiation from entering the stream as quickly and it can provide a more natural thermal regime. So there's extra reasons for conserving that uh, riparian processes. Um, we might also more carefully manage flows that come out of dams so that they more more clearly mimic a natural system, and we can allow rivers to migrate so that they have a greater mosaic of habitats. 
those kinds of things we were doing before. And now we understand that there are even more reasons to do it because we can protect the thermal landscape, not just the mean conditions, but the variability of that thermal landscape, the complexity. I think in addition to that, what this research shows is that when we're monitoring thermal regimes, when we're doing science on thermal regimes, we need to think about the variability itself as an ecological resource. We need to think about measuring frequently in time and not simply averaging it, but looking across time at how different parts of the river network are fluctuating. Then we can understand the species that have perhaps their eggs are incubating in the gravel in this part of the river or a species that is uh, rearing and needing a lot of food inputs in another part of the river, we can understand how the thermal regime might fluctuate differently in these different parts of the river. We can really refine what facet of that thermal landscape matters to a particular individual species at a particular time. And beyond those science and management implications, I think maybe the most important thing about this research is how we think about the future. So we know that humans are already modifying the landscape. We're trying to restore it. And we know that we're going to see changes. For example, increases in air temperature, shifts in whether precipitation falls as rain or as snow. And I think naturally we imagine that things might just get warmer, right? We could just take the thermal landscape as we have it and just make everything a little bit warmer. But what our research is showing is that it's unlikely to be such an even change. And so we need to make plans for the future in which perhaps things become more synchronized or things become desynchronized. And I don't think that we really have thought about that as clearly in the past. Okay. So would that be something like, um, you know, in terms of it not just being a sort of mean rise in temperature, you know, two degrees Celsius up everywhere, it could be something like you have... Uh, as a result of uh, climate change, greater snowfall in the winter, um, and then a faster snow melt or something like that. And that could have a sort of dynamic effect on the thermal landscape. Exactly. And that might happen in the um, south-facing aspects of the parts of the river. And so some tributaries would have that influence. And other tributaries might that are flow through a more northerly-facing part of the basin might still have a lot of snowfall. And so not only would the variability over the season change, but that variability in the season might change differently in one part of the network than in another part of the network. And it might affect, for example, aquatic insects at one stage of their life cycle, and it would affect fishes at a different stage of their life cycle. So it sounds like this is just a, a, a way of seeing the river network with a lot more clarity. I think so. And a way of integrating some of the ideas about variability, things we know from statistics to give us ecological insight so we can better value all of the ways that the natural system works and that will help us make better predictions about how it may shift into the future. That's great. And, you know, one thing I was hoping we could touch on just a little bit is about the conduct of the research. You know, I always kind of wonder, um, you know, when you're placing all these loggers and things like that, does that pose a challenge where you have to work with landowners, um, you know, in order to secure permission for their placement? Or do you have so much publicly available land up there in the Pacific Northwest that, you know, you can rely on federal lands only? Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how that works? It's a mix. And we're very grateful. Grateful to the landowners that do let us onto their property. So um, in the basin where 
we're working now, the one we focused on for this paper, um, the headwaters are mostly in public lands. And we look for areas that are relatively easy to access, that span the range of um, variables we think drive water temperature regimes. So we want some on north facing aspects, some on south facing aspects, some on small streams, some on big streams, some with development, some without development. And then we look for an anchor where we can cable this thing in the river and it won't disappear. So it won't get washed out in high flow and it won't dry up in the summer. And um, over time, I think our team has gained a lot of experience in where loggers are likely to stay in the water, but that is one of the, the fun gambles. The, put it out there in September and come back in June and hope it's still uh, underwater and, and logging water temperature. Right. And as we move into, you know, sort of the last questions, um, can you tell us a little bit about what the future might hold for this field of study? Uh, you know, whether that be in your own research or, you know, in a wider context. I think we need to do, continue this combination of fieldwork and um, laboratory experiments so we can better refine how different species react to thermal variability. So we need to make some predictions about how thermal variability may change in a changing climate or with changing land use or with changing dam operations. And then we need to understand empirically how that's going to affect all the different components of the food web. And we're, we're just getting ready to do that. I think people are, people are starting that kind of science. Um, we also, there's a huge interest right now in identifying cool water patches. So I speak a lot about variability over time, though these fluctuations over time, that's my primary interest. And one of my co-authors, Christian Torgerson, he focuses a lot on diversity over space and looking at where there are small areas that are cooler than the rest of the river. And that can provide some refuge during a warm summer day for uh, species to move in and feed or rest or um, reduce thermal stress. And um, I also want to give a, an acknowledgement to the other two co-authors on this paper. So Tim Beachy with NOAA's Northwest Fisheries Science Center put a lot of energy into helping us understand how management actions can be used to conserve or restore these thermal regimes. And Amy Fullerton, also with NOAA's Northwest Fisheries Science Center, did a lot of work helping us connect to all the literature on this topic, from fishes to uh, terrestrial insects and uh, to helping us really visualize these fluctuating thermal regimes. In the paper, we have some videos that Amy produced where we've modeled water temperature over the entire network, for example, every half an hour, and then you can watch a movie of the whole day, uh, water temperature evolving over the whole network in one day or over the whole network and over a year, uh, obviously at a coarser timescale. And you can really see how complicated and how complex these thermal regimes are. And now speaking of that complexity, um, how do you how do you manage to wrangle all this data? You know, that's something we talk about occasionally on the podcast is, you know, what do you do when you have exponentially more data points than you would have had, you know, 10 years ago? Has that been a challenge in and of itself? It's been a huge challenge. Um, uh, what we did in the, the first project was I, I put it on the laptop and kept waiting for a student who was able to help me uh, uncover it. And after almost 10 years, we finally had a statistics student who spent about a year and a half figuring out how to uh, read the data into the uh, R statistical software that we use and then um, 
how to clean it effectively because sometimes these loggers come out of the water and then they go back into the water and you'll see uh, a spike and you, you know, visually it's clear, but you can't, uh, it's difficult manually to sort through all this data and decide which, which are erroneous measurements and which are correct measurements. Uh, so that was Colin Satter and he created um, a large amount of computer code for us to clean and organize the data. And we now have a, a system in which every day when it comes off the river, I take it onto my computer, I email it to a woman working at the Forest Service, Amy Marche. She cleans it that night and puts it into an Excel spreadsheet. We're still using Excel in our group and uh, we have it ready to go by the end. By the time we've brought the last logger in, the data's clean because we've discovered if we, if we leave it for a month or two, it doesn't work very well. Understood. This sounds like a very strong case for uh, upcoming biology students to uh, take as many statistics and programming classes as there are available to them. I don't think it's possible to take too many statistics classes. Just to make a quick case, I think there's both the statistics of um, how you analyze the data, but I think the statistics also help inform how we think about the data. So without that knowledge of, say, Jensen's inequality, it's hard to think about how variability might influence something. Without an understanding of correlation structures and how data or observations that are close to each other might be related differently in a river than they are on land, without that kind of statistical thinking, it's very difficult to make accurate models and predictions of water temperature regimes. So there's an incredible opportunity for students, especially, who want to learn both about statistics, not just the machinery and the calculations, but this underlying processes and how you can think about data and the ecological system. Because when we integrate them, I think we can understand things that we can't understand without that integration. All right. Well, I hope that all of the student biologists who were listening just heard that and took it to heart. Dr. Steele, thank you very much for joining me today. All right. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.